Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 52 of 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame and whatever the fuck else we want to talk about. I'm Jamie Berger. My guest today is Beth Lissick. And maybe you can hear a little frustration in my voice. It's not about Beth or our conversation, which I really enjoyed. It's because some of you are tuning in because I've been talking a lot this week on Facebook, those of you who follow me on social media or are friends of mine, about how I really have a lot of thoughts about this. It is Today is January 18th, 2018, and this is coming to the end of Aziz Ansari Me Too Moment Week. And I've found that a lot of... that. I've read about 30 articles. I've read reams of, of, of interesting and sometimes infuriating comments on a post of mine on Facebook, and I wish I could talk about it in 10 or 15 minutes. Instead, what I'm going to do, because I've collected about 20 pages of notes, and I'm going to write a post and put it up on the website of this podcast, 15 minutes, jamieberger.com by next Monday. If you don't know about the Aziz Ansari story this week, I simply don't have time to go into it here. Normally I would be, I, I would just take it for granted that almost anybody who's listening to this would know about that. But the other day I ran into a friend, someone I really like and respect and is smart and who I think is tuned in and she hadn't heard about Louie. It's January 2018. So you can't assume when people decide to tune out or tune in and the news moves so fast. And just giving you the background to this would take too long. So I'm going to write my little piece about it next week. About the backlashy responses of a lot of men and some women. And about how those responses and the pro me too and and how this is appropriate for me to to talk about responses from some men as well and the backlash responses from some women as well and how the way that people have responded to this story this week also has a lot to do with age as well as gender and the amount of agency and responsibility that women have or don't have based on this piece and whether 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 someone was wrongly exposed is not my issue and you don't have to like that i feel that way i full disclaimer have every reason to like aziz ansari i love parks and rec i like his work i saw him perform pre-parks and rec at a little club, fairly little, in, at Union Hall in Brooklyn. I, I'm pretty sure I went up to him and said, hey, man, great set, and ran away at least once. But I also feel that, no, his career won't be ruined. And what this week adds to the conversation is more important than the humiliation and some career damage he will face over some very, very likely, very, very shitty behavior. But here I am starting to go into it, and I'm not going to. If you want to read, I'm going to start by writing about the New Yorker short story, Cat Person, 
and leading up to Aziz and talking about some things that don't get, haven't been talked about this week, such as very much the role of a famous person, not just a powerful person, not just a man, but the role of a famous person in how hard it is to say no. And there's a lot of talk about this week that is very, very useful about the way men are raised and conditioned. But I think from my own upbringing, the way women are conditioned and raised by mothers and fathers is something that I don't think is the place for men to really talk about. I mean, talk about, sure. But in my upbringing, the girls were raised to behave a certain way and the boys were raised to behave a certain way. And the way, the only way the boys in my school got sex was to not take no and keep going. And the only way the girls, even if they wanted sex, got it was to, you're supposed to say no a few times first. And I know that mothers were raising girls that way, even the most liberal mothers were raising their girls to, to, to keep that moral upper hand. And some of you right now might be thinking I'm saying that to, to rationalize my own behavior in high school. If anything, it's the opposite. It's, I'm bringing it up because I'm bitter, because I was raised by a good feminist, and I took no as no in high school, and later in later years, some of those girls were like, I really liked you, we could have had sex, but you didn't push it, and I don't regret those choices at all, but maybe it makes me feel like men who don't respect no need to be held a little more in account, maybe I'm a little bitter. And maybe I'm a little upset that the girls weren't taught, who liked me, weren't taught to say so. But one last note, because I'm just not good enough to put this pithily and succinctly enough to start my podcast, I will send you, because I did the fucking homework this week, I will send you to the best thing that I've read. Three pieces. If you go to the katiekatiekate.com K-A-T-Y-K-A-T-I-K-A-T-E dot com website. There are three great blog posts from Katie Anthony about this week of Grace, Aziz, and Me Too. But for now, I do have an episode that does touch on these subjects. My guest this week is an old friend from San Francisco, Beth Lissick. From the bio on her site, you could learn <clears throat> that Beth Lissick is a writer and actor. She is the author of five books and has appeared in films screened at Cannes, Sundance, and the San Francisco International Film Festival. Her books include the memoir collection, Yokohama Three-Way, and Other Small Shames. The New York Times best-selling comic memoir, Everybody Into the Pool, and the Gonzo Self-Help Manifesto, Helping Me Help Myself. Yokohama Three-Way is a collection of shameful, embarrassing moments. And I didn't ask Beth to read from it because at this point it's a few years old and I didn't think I was going to focus on it, but to introduce this conversation, I think it would help 
to read one of the, the entries are short, about a page long, so I'm going to read you one that's called Dicks. My brother Paul was a senior when I was a freshman. We hardly ever saw each other during the school day, but there were occasions when I would clock his trademark limp as he walked across the quad, right foot leading, left foot lagging. Sometimes he would do this little galloping step and start clapping his hands really fast. He had cerebral palsy, a physical disability that affected all the muscles on his left side. But he also had something else we didn't have a name for. What is it called when you memorize the TV guide? A bunch of times that year, I saw this group of popular boys, lunky jocks, not the runners, but maybe the baseball or football guys, making fun of him behind his back, imitating his walk. They'd really crack themselves up and yell something at him like, Retard! Or, Mental case! Or sometimes it was a question. What's the square root of pi, retard? He'd ignore them instead of saying 1.772453850091 like he did at home and get into our mom's station wagon while I went to track practice. One day, I stomped over to those jocks in my black boots and my thrift store dog tags jangling around my neck. No, I didn't. That would be the version where I'm some kind of a cool girl hero. What actually happened is that I heard them yelling at him, and my ears got hot, and I never said anything to them. Not even once the whole year. The book is full of embarrassing moments like this, humiliating moments, shameful moments, from Beth's childhood up through the years that I knew her in San Francisco. What we have today is part one of our conversation, in which we talk about pretty much everything but fame that was on uh, our plate to talk about. And in the second half of our conversation, which will be episode 53, we talk about career and fame and the novel she's working on. But, well, the rest of this is self-explanatory. Here's part one of my conversation with Beth Lissick from December which began after a little bit of technical difficulty. <laughs> and is it Beth Lissick? It are is you... me. I think we are recording just fine. Oh, good. I like to test the patience of, of all the guests before we start. Just kind of livens up. Livens everything. Yeah. yeah. You know, keep them on their toes. See right. what they'll put up with. I knew yeah. you'd under, I knew if anyone, <laughs> you would understand. I, I was thinking this week that it doesn't feel like that long since I've spoken to you. But it has been. 10 plus years, 15. Oh my God. Yeah. That's a weird thing about knowing a person for a long time is that you sort of, and then with, I guess with social media stuff that I don't see you on there that much. I don't know. I've been trying to lay off of it, but, um, but yeah. If you don't see me, it's great. Cause I'm on way too much. 
I'm I'm much more on Twitter than I used to be and much less on Facebook than I used to be because of trying to promote this show mm -hmm. to more than just my pals. Right, um, right. Yeah. Um, but hi. Long hi. time. It's certainly been since before you had a child, which was 15 years ago, right? <gasps> oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My yeah. son is, will be 16 in two months. Wow. I know. Should we talk about raising a boy in this time of men? You know, I don't know. <laughs> I, I remember, I mean, you whatever know. Whatever you want to talk about. <sighs> I, it's true. This is this is supposedly up to me. Um, we'll get to to what I wrote you about uh, and that whole thing in a little bit. But yeah. I was thinking about the the raising a, a a male child because my mother raised me in second wave feminism. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, my husband Eli was raised by a you know lesbian feminist. I mean, it just the best you know <laughs> it's like I, I i really feel like wow she did a great job and he had a um his biological dad they were together before she was fully fully gay and um he was like a you know alcoholic deadbeat dad and he is always just so glad that he wasn't raised by that person whoever he was you know he's he, he i mean his mom raised him by herself and with her father and, um, yeah, did a pretty great job. So I, I think that, um, I think a lot of it, I mean, and, and maybe I'm just, this is lazy parenting, but I do feel like a lot of it just comes with the territory. It's like, he's a, you know, our son Gus is, he's around us and he's around the, you know, us as we take in the world. And so a lot of it, um, there are things that, you know, I've talked to him about usually spurred on by uh, something we're watching on TV, a movie or something like that. But, um, but for the most part, I do think a lot of it is like, he's, he's getting it by, by being with us and listening to us and living with us, you know? So, so that, um, I don't know. I think that, that, I mean, that, I don't know, like I said, that could be <laughs> lazy parenting, but it's, 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 I, I do, um, I do think that, that if you've got, parents who are sort of uh living that way and it it kind of it it gets it gets into the system of the family you know yeah yeah i i think so i hope so it certainly was true for me and my father just want to put say dad not a deadbeat hi dad um <laughs> but he you know was in his 40s when this you know i think of today as comparable to to those days and there are already a lot of writers, women writers, writing about the backlash that's to come. But I think things improved then, and they'll improve now. Oh, I know. There, I, I just feel like, yep, it's gonna, yeah, it's great. It's great that this is happening now. It's terrible and great at the same time because I think it's just gonna keep. I mean, yeah, maybe there's gonna be a backlash, but I just feel like these stories are just gonna keep coming out for mm -hmm. a really long time. Mm -hmm. And young men growing up will learn things that perhaps, you know, generations before them didn't about things like, you know. I think that's true. About avoiding anything true. vaguely like a gray area in certain situations, you know. Yeah. Just, uh, so I, I think good will come of it. 
the reason I asked about your your son is that I, you know, I one of the many things I do to pay the mortgages, I work with high school students. Uh, I'm a I'm an academic coach, which is a fancy name for a tutor and other things, at a uh, prep school near me, and we usually stay away from politics unless they want to go there. Uh, mm-hmm. Politics or social issues, unless you know if they're writing a paper, we discuss it. But I don't. Right. Uh, and this this young woman I've known, she's a senior. I've known her all four years. Said to me the other day, "Why, all of a sudden, are all men <laughs> uh, horrible?" <laughs> and so, <laughs> so we talked about it for a while. But it made me think if I had a kid. Yeah, I mean, you know what was interesting when we moved here to Brooklyn from uh, California is that uh, we just, you know, sent Gus to the public school that he was assigned to down the street, mm-hmm. and then um, which was he was the only white kid in his uh, class in his grade actually. Um, so that's not, you know thirty, sixty, ninety kids. And then the next year was middle school, but, but the way they do it in New York is, you know, after a month of into fifth grade, you have to start like, like figuring out where you're going to go to middle school. And so I had just gotten here and I didn't know anything and I didn't have any community to talk to about it. And, you know, so I just was like, well, I guess we'll just do the same thing and go to wherever, you know, you go, you know, I looked around and, you know, tried to figure it out, but it was anyway. And so then for his um, next three years, he ended up going to a school that he could walk to from our neighborhood where he was also uh, the only white kid in his class, which then midway through his like uh, second year there, another white girl came in. But I mean, so it, it was great because he, that it was the best education. It was like being able to, especially during, you know, Ferguson and Baltimore and, and, and while all that stuff was coming out and I mean, and still is now, but it was like, you know, you can't be a black teacher at a black school and not talk about that stuff to your kids, you know? And, and so, and I know that you're talking about being in a tutor environment where it's like they're writing the paper and that's not an everyday classroom situation, mm-hmm. Yeah. but it was, it was I mean, like the test scores at the school weren't great and, you know, it was fine. It was all, it was fine. But, but that stuff ended up being like the best education that he could have gotten about race relations in the United States, because he would go with his friends into stores and they would, you know, he would be treated differently than his friends. I mean, he had that for four straight years. And I think that, that a lot of the stuff like that I was talking about, like, how do you talk to your son about it? It's like with that stuff, I it was reading all these, you know, white people being like, well, how do you talk to your kids about this? And I was like, God, I really think that I, you know, am, am uh, just by, by accident, you know, able to, to uh, I, there's nothing that I can tell him that he hasn't actually seen and experienced himself. And um, I see all this stuff now, I think with men who are, you know, think of themselves as feminists and, and, and kind of getting that sense of, oh, shit, like I mm-hmm. didn't even realize that I'd been living in this privilege because I'd been aware of this and that and whatever. But 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 I think that if once it's pointed out to you, as for me, it was just having four years. Also, when I lived in Berkeley, I lived on a block um, where we were the only white family. And so that's been like 
you know, I, I never thought I was a racist person. I never thought, you know, and, and then all of a sudden I'm living in a black neighborhood. I'm sending my kids to, I'm sending my kid to a school with all black kids. And now I'm like, oh, I can't not see race everywhere because I see the injustice of it. And, and I think that uh, for a lot of men, it's now that things are being pointed out to them, they can see it a lot better, you know, and, and now that they're living it and thinking like, oh my God, what have I done? And, and all that, that, that they're able to now see it, but you don't, it's easy, I think, intellectually to say that you don't uh, experience something or see something uh, until you're really actually in it. And then, and then I think that's when, you know, I kind of feel (laughs) uh, like some of the, uh, I've just been listening to Yokohama three-way this week. And that feeling of ickiness is, is coming upon me a lot when I, in the last two episodes, that I'm saying my little mea culpas and I, I feel it's kind of icky and gross, but I also feel that people aren't doing it uh-huh. and that a lot of men are either scared or they're indulging in being really angry at Louis uh-huh. Uh-huh. instead of saying it's like, it's like saying I'm not a racist is, is a silly thing to say instead of exploring how you might be. Exactly. That I feel like men are, are either afraid to explore it or they aren't. And that's what made me think of the story I told last week about making a stupid comment about somebody's picture on Facebook. Right, right. And then the, the second thing I thought of was this long, my memory is horrible. And my memory of what we're about to talk about is really, really vague. But I remember, I remember more you calling me on something than, than it actually happening. Okay, I remember the whole thing, so I can I can tell you, yeah. Should we start with that, and then we'll talk about also the email? Okay, so what I remember is, and this is, I mean, I mean, we're going back to like 1992, maybe 1993. Mm-hmm. I mean, a really Three long or time four, ago. Three or four, I think. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> San Francisco. Oh, San Francisco. And mission I mean, district, mission district. And the reason I think it was so the thing I think reason it was 92 or 93 is because I of the apartment that I knew that I was living in when this happened. So listener, I was living in uh, the mission district in San Francisco as uh, and so I'm walking around one day doing errands. I think it was a weekend day. And it was because I had like a regular job during the week. And and it was a beautiful sunny afternoon and I was walking, going in and out of, you know, what I, I was, I was actually just walking to the bank, I think. And then I felt this person, I think because I'm a woman, I felt like I was being followed. Oh God. And I kind of, I mean, I know this is, I know, I, I mean, I'm not going to um, do the female thing and apologize. No, don't. No, no. I'm apologizing already. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. Okay. So I felt like this person was following me. So I, I was like, huh, I wonder if this guy is really following me. And I, I kind of glanced over my shoulder and saw there was a guy around my age, you know, and, and, um, and it didn't seem creepy or weird to me. And I think also that's because of whatever my history had been at that point in my life. Like I, I had not, you know, if, if I think that if I had been followed by someone before and been attacked or been, or had something really horrible happen, I would definitely have felt differently about this. But I was kind of like, I think this guy's following me. So I went into a cafe. I waited in line as if I were going to order coffee. And then I didn't. And I turned around and that person followed me back. And I went out the, I went out the door and then I said, Oh, I think I'll go to this fruit and vegetable market and just sort of like, 
look around at a few a few uh, fruits and vegetables for a minute and and did that didn't buy anything walked out the person followed me um walked down the street and finally I was like oh my god this guy's following me so I turned around and I said are you following me and it was you <laughs> so that's that's the story. And, and you uh, were very embarrassed, I think. And we're like, oh, no, I'm, uh, and you just went, went off. You didn't, you know, you didn't, you, you just went off. And I was like, oh, my God, that guy was, just and in my mind, I was just like, oh, that guy probably thought I was cute and wanted to meet me or something. Like, I didn't, it didn't yep. seem, it didn't seem creepy to me. And, and I think that um, it sounds very creepy, but it, it really didn't seem like it. It was like, I don't know, we were young and walking around the street in the middle of the day and there were tons of people around. And, and that's, I mean, I don't know. I just, I was retelling the story to Eli the other day and uh, saying that I was going to talk to you. And he's like, he's like, Oh my God, I've probably done that before too. Like that's how you meet. So you see a cute girl on the street and you go, you know, and, and so there's, I don't know. That's, I, I like this story because it's like one of those things where it's sort of like, I don't know, that was you and that was me and that thing happened and it sounds creepy and it could have been really creepy, but it wasn't. And, but the, I think the thing was that you were, you were bartending at the makeout room and, and I went in, I was there and I was like, oh my God, that's the guy that and you, and you, we had mutual friends. And so, so when the time that you were following me, I didn't know that. But then when I, then I'd seen you around a little bit more and, and, and recognized, oh, that's the guy. Oh, the guy that followed me that day is the guy that bartends at the makeup room. Oh, the guy that's, his name is Jamie. He's friends with so-and-so that I know. And so one time, I'm sure I just had a few drinks and was like, oh, my God, you totally stopped me that day, you know, and said something like that. And you were like, no, I didn't. I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about. And I was like, it was you. And you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. And so um, so this is how I remember it, is that you never actually admitted that you did it. Really? So here's the thing. The, I, I, I have never believed in repressed memory very much. And I tend to remember a lot of the most mortifying things in my life. <laughs> me but too, me too. When you got to, to the free, yeah, and you've written a whole book about it. And I, when you got to the fruit market part, I'm like, yes, images. I remember image flashing sunny day fruit market. I don't remember the confrontation. Uh huh. And I certainly don't really never realize that I have never said that it was me. That I've never like owned up to it. Yeah, that's what's so funny to me. Is that is that in my mind it was always like and and I even thought I even thought yeah Beth that was pretty shitty to to like say that to him while he's like at work in a public place like hey you stalked me um you know and whatever. I asked for it <laughs> you know it's not I don't know it wasn't the best way to to bring but I guess probably it felt safe I was probably standing there thinking like oh I can say this here because we're in this you know public place and it was it was kind of weird and um. And, and so then when you sent me that email, I was like, wait, here you are now admitting for the first time that you did that. And, and then the way that you phrased it was, I almost talked on my podcast about the time you called me a stalker. And, and I was like, oh my God, why didn't you phrase it as I'm sorry 
but I, I, you know, I'm about to talk about the time that I followed you instead of putting it on me, like, oh, what I did to you. I'm like, oh, I called you that because you followed me. So, so that was that was interesting to me because in my memory, and I, I think this is correct. You never actually admitted or apologized that, that you know for doing that or say you know you never said it was you. Well. I believe every word of that, but in my head, I sh- in my head, I sure have since then. Um, and I think part of it is just the level of guilt of being the the feminist ally child that like I couldn't have done that. And then the level and and yet and and I think calling me out in the bar was was in a way perfect because one thing I always always liked about bartending was that. I could be mortified that I was in some way going to uh, infringe on a woman if I tried. Like, that day, I'm sure what I was doing was walking around and walking around thinking, uh, like, I'm a great talker, except when I think someone's cute or charming uh-huh. or attractive. And then I'm just like, and I was thinking, well, what am I going to say? <laughs> and, and that's what I walked around doing that afternoon. I'm so sure of it. Um, but bartending was always wonderful in that, in that women had this safety space between me and them. Yeah. And I think I could be much more flirtatious, much more whatever, because I knew they could just walk away. Yeah. And and so I always enjoyed that. I think every man <laughs> should have a bar between him and women. <laughs> just a, just a, like a three-foot piece of oak, just a large plank. Yeah. 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 That the you women have a door on, to yeah. that they can open. Yeah. If they want to get closer, you just open the little bar door. What's important to me about the emails that we exchanged last week, and Beth and I, we, we've been talking about just having you on the show for a long time and it just keeps not happening because we want to do it live. And then I'm in New York and you're not, blah, blah, blah. But so I wrote you last week and then you wrote back saying, yeah, but you're putting it on me like the time I called you a stalker. And here's where I think a lot of men are running into a wall. Men who aren't good at reckoning with themselves or apologizing. And I sent this email that was, I thought was taking responsibility, but it wasn't at all. And then you wrote back. And here's where it's tricky. That, that men, me, I, we have to hear that if we offer what we think is an apology... Or something, you know, uh, there was an etiquette expert from the Times on the radio last week. And the first person I've heard saying this is that say, suggesting that men, if you feel like you really did something wrong back when, contact that person if you want. They might say, I don't want to hear from you ever again. Or they might say, oh, I don't even remember that happening. But make the effort and accept their response. The trick is that your response can trigger a defensiveness. In me, it was immediately like, wow, look at the way I misuse language there because that's just the state I'm in these days of wanting to take responsibility. But men, I feel like a lot of men, and it could be women too, but right now we're talking about the world today and men can be like, yeah, but I just apologized. Right, right. Yeah, it would have, yeah, I would have definitely, I mean, but I, I also just feel like, you know, I've known you for a long time and it's not, I don't know. It's like, I keep wanting to downplay it because I also do feel like when I wrote back to you, I knew that you would just take it as I meant it. Like, Hey, you know, it might've been better if you had just written and said like, Hey, I'm sorry for the time that I did that. Um, 
and let's do you want to talk about it? But, you know, and, and, and so, but I know what you're saying. Yeah. It's, it's like me writing back and being like, Whoa, check out the way you phrase this man. You know, like um, I think it does. Cause it's like on your part, you were reaching out in a way and you thought you were doing a thing and so I could see how it would be, you know, you could be a little, you could have been defensive about it. Cause in your mind, you were like, all right, Hey, let's talk about this. And then I was saying like, Oh, look at your, you know, sentence structure basically. <laughs> so, you know, when, when I do honestly believe that your intent, you know, is what to apologize and then to just set it straight and talk about it. But the language is important and, and, Hearing women's response that might not always be, oh, thank you so much for that apology, uh, you know, might uh, is also worth noting. <laughs> Sorry about that. Jamie, jumping in here for a second, a uh, month later. Heh, <laughs> Sorry about that is not an apology. And I think some people out there noticed that nowhere in there did I really give a sincere, non-embarrassed chuckle apology. Beth, I hope you listen to this episode. I'm really sorry that I followed you that day in an inappropriate and creepy ass way. And there is no appropriate and uncreepy ass way to follow a woman around. I'm sorry. We'll talk a little bit more about how to apologize as discussed by the brilliant Katie Anthony at the end of this episode. Thanks. Back to the conversation. I was in a bar the other day talking to a fellow male human and he, and I was talking about how men again, I'm stereotyping, but men aren't as good as at empathy. And so you hear this a lot from guys the like and there was a great piece on this American life a couple of weeks ago, this Australian young woman got dolled up on heels and stuff and walked around and all the men, it was a place where men drive around and catcall or walk around. And she talked to each person who catcalled her and ended up focusing the story, focused, focused, focused in on this one guy. And she talked to him for like hours over several days. And he was a very like bro-y guy who was like, I'm just being nice. And sometimes I even slap the one with the best ass. I, I, I should try to do my bad Australian accent, but I'm not going to. And I, because, and, and they like it. And she came back the next day with statistics and she really stuck with it. Like someone who likes debate club, which I never did. <laughs> like she was going to convince him. And in the end, I think it was supposed to have a happy ending, but I wasn't convinced. He, she got him to agree that it, must be upsetting to some women and he certainly was like acknowledging that it upset her but he I felt like in the back of his mind he must have thought she was strange um for not for not thinking it was cool and she got him to agree not to slap anyone but he said he would still give nice compliments on the street when he thought it was nice the point is that I don't think men are that good you know and and the three times in my life when I've been you know catcalled by like gay men in New York uh, when I was much younger, sadly, uh, I loved it because I don't experience it on a 10 times a day basis. It was mm -hmm. flattering because mm -hmm. it was a once in a lifetime. And my male friend sitting at the bar with me was like, yeah, what we need are a third larger gender <laughs> who can be menacing every day walking down the street 
to men. Like men need to know what it's like to have this big, often predatory creature passing you and saying things all the time. Yeah. Well, it's weird. It's weird, too, because that kind of stuff, it's like, you know, sometimes, like, it doesn't really happen to me anymore, but, but you know, people catcalling me on the street or anything. But, but even if somebody says something to me now... I usually just go like, because it's usually, it's you, because it's usually not anything like disgusting. It's sort of like just somebody working on the street or whatever that says, says something like, Hey, how's it going? You know, just in a nice way. And I think, Oh, they're just, you know, and so I usually just return, you know, and say like, Hey, what's up? And, and it doesn't, it, it doesn't feel menacing to me to be talked to on the street now, because I feel like, it doesn't, it's not in the same way, you know, it's like, it's not this, it doesn't feel the same as when I was younger and I felt like, oh God, this like I'm on display. And I think that's the part that always bothered me was like, I just want to walk down the street and not have anybody, you know, talk to me. And even now, if somebody talks to me or they try to start up a conversation, you know, a lot of times you're just like, you're just not in the mood, you know? And, but, but I think that being a woman, it's like, wow, that's a lot of it is just feeling like, yeah, that you're there and can at any point, somebody can just start talking to you or that there's this, like this, this weird, like open valve thing that is just like, Oh wow. You can just say and do whatever you want. And there's, there's no, um, there's no repercussions and that scene is totally normal. And, and that's, that's for me, the thing that, that always bummed me out about it was not so much as it, it was just kind of like the invasion invasion of privacy and feeling like that you couldn't just walk around in your head being your weird self. Like all of a sudden you were like out there for somebody else. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it would be, um, yeah, I think it would be interesting for men to have that experience of feeling like, Whoa, what would that, I mean, that's, that's kind of like what I was talking about before. Like until you get in some kind of, how are you supposed to know? How are you supposed to know what that feels like? Unless you're in that situation, you know, it's like there's when I did that book a bunch of years ago about self-help and, and like read a bunch of self-help books and talked to self-help gurus and stuff like that. Like one of the major things was like you can say that you know something, but if you're not actually living it, you might not even be allowed to say that you know something. You know, you, you can't even say like, oh, intellectually, I know that's true, but that's not all the way the way that I act. It's, it's almost like that thing about your character is how you act. And so if you say you know something, if you're not actually putting that in practice, you technically can't say you know it. And, and, and so I, there is, you know, it's like you can, we can think about that, like, oh, what, you know, men can know, like, okay, most women don't like to be, you know, catcalled and talked to on the street, but it's like, how do they know? Yeah, what that what that feels like to be, to be kind of constantly. If we, if we can't know it firsthand, at least we can create systems where we're, where we learn it. Exactly. Exactly. And that's like my, you know, white son kid being, you know, being in in school with a bunch of black and brown kids and being like, okay, he's never going to know what that's like, but he can get, he can get pretty close and get a pretty good idea. And until then we can start marketing that little portable bar product. (laughs) But yeah. we'd have to have like I a think little. With just suspenders, with suspenders <laughs> on it, sort of like a barrel. Thank you for going back through all that with me. Oh yeah, for sure. 
If you want to learn more about how to apologize, especially in the Me Too era, uh, Katie Anthony, who I mentioned before of the Katie Katie Kate site, has a really funny and powerful and actually useful guide to apologies that you can find by going to Katie Katie Kate, K-A-T-Y-K-A-T-I-K-A-T-E. Those of you... And I'm sure there are some of you out there who, who think that apologies can be very self-serving. And maybe my own in these last three episodes, uh, personal accounting, personal reckoning, are self-serving. My response to that is absolutely, they are. Let me pause for a moment and say, from the home studio here, you might be hearing my dogs bark in the background. That's because my dogs are barking in the background. <sighs> Apologies are self-serving, but is there anything that wrong with serving yourself if it's helping someone else as well, if it's doing some good in the world? I'm a big believer that there's no such thing as altruism. That people do good things because it makes them feel good. And one of the good things that... <clears throat> especially men can do these days is to specifically and clearly, and you see, it was very hard. I didn't do it right at first. Apologize. And what the heck? I'm going to read you a little bit of what Katie Anthony says about how to do that. Because at the end of her piece, she has a nice little list of how to apologize. It's a great, it's a really funny piece. All right, let me find it here, scrolling down. This was a last-second decision to do this for you guys, for you. Uh, this is a gift from me to you. All right, how to apologize. Where the fuck is it? It's on here somewhere in my 20-page document. Ah, here we go. This is the end. You have to read the whole thing to really understand it. But one... Identify what you did wrong. Two, take full responsibility for what you did wrong. Three, express understanding of the impact of what you did wrong. Four, communicate genuine remorse for what you did wrong. And five, make a promise or plan to do better in the future or demonstrate that you value this person. And then she writes, shit, that was a lot of information. But you heard me, right? And you probably know this already, right? And that little list comes at the end of a long series of examples of people doing it the wrong way. If you'd like to know more about Beth Lissick, you can go to BethLissick.com, B-E-T-H-L-I-S-I-C-K.com, or you can tune in back here next week at 15minutesjamieberger.com, 15minutesjamieberger.com, which you can listen to just about everywhere podcasts are found, like iTunes and SoundCloud. And we will have part two of our conversation, in which we talk about her work, her writing. Uh, and I will lead in with something that Beth Lissick inspired me years ago, uh, as one of the creators and hosts of the Porchlight Storytelling Series in San Francisco, 
I got up and told a story that ended up being about the only complete piece of writing I've ever done in my life. And I've been milking it for 15 years, so I'll read it once more next week. It's called Peep Show, and it's not a metaphor. I hope you'll tune in. Thank you for listening. Ed Patnode is the engineer. This is 15 Minutes. I'm Jamie Berger.